Hello, hello. Welcome to another show of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent within the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and this week we welcome to the show Dr. Dion Terralong. Dr. Dion Terralong is a chartered psychologist, a researcher, and stylist. I guess you could call her a bit of a triple threat. As a psychologist, she focuses on the inside. As a stylist, she focuses on the outside. And as a lecturer, I guess that also means she focuses on the mind. As a stylist, she has her own company called The Style and Wellbeing Consultancy, where she works with clients on things such as personal styling and home wardrobe analysis. As a lecturer, she works with the London College of Fashion to investigate the link between nude, clothing practices and well-being. She is considered one of the pioneers of fashion psychology, certainly in this country. Dion has given numerous fashion psychology-related talks, including for companies like Next and Unilever, as well as providing comment and content for media outlets such as BBC Radio, Vogue, Elle and Starless Magazine, to name a few. Here is my conversation with Dr. Dion Tevelop. Okay, so welcome to the show, Dr. Dion Terralong. How are you this evening? I'm good. The sun is shining, so that always helps my mood. It certainly does. Although I was, I got caught on a train coming back just in time for this interview. I don't know about you, but the, the sun or the humidity, it does drain my energy. Do you have the same problem? If I'm on a tube, yes. Oh. <laughs> I think trains or any kind of transport and heat, they don't mix. Yeah, it is a nightmare. And I'm so glad that we're able now to at least work one or two days from home. So it does make a huge difference. It does, actually. Really glad to get you on the show because you've passed the career, which is quite unique, I would say, and certainly different to any of the other guests that we've had on the show. So (laughs) I'm sure people will be interested to find out a bit more. But before we get into that and your, your personal journey, because it's so topical, we don't usually do this, but because it's so topical with Edward NFL stepping down last week from Vogue, I just wanted to get your your take on, on that and what, how do you feel about that? Uh, is it bad to say that I've been so busy the last couple of weeks I haven't had time to think about that? I did notice it and all I thought to myself was like, I wonder why. And I, that's what I thought. I thought, why now? I think that since he has been in charge, he has done so many wonderful things and he has done so much for putting people of colour kind of in the spotlight and at the forefront and like showing different types of kind of beauty as well. Um, but yeah, my only question was, I wonder why. And I'm just, I'm just curious and excited to see what he goes on to do next. Yeah, I mean, I, I read today that he, he might be taking on more of a global role to grow some of the maybe some of the more less mature markets. But I, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't follow the industry that much, but mm. um yeah, I mean, he's obviously had a quite a big impact, hasn't he, in the six years that he's been there. So I, for one, who, who you know, who doesn't follow the fashion industry that big, I mean, I was quite sad about it. So, yeah, as I'm, I'm curious to see who they choose to replace him. Mm. I think that will be interesting. I think that'll be an interesting time. And, you know, I'll be, I would be, I keep using the word interested, but I would be interested to see, just even hear the conversations as to how they decide. I think who they choose to replace him will also potentially could potentially say a lot and may say more than they had intended. 
Ashley. Yes. So watch this space. That would be interesting, as you say, to to find out. But uh, Dion, this is about you, and I, I hope you don't mind me calling you Dion. Yep, that's fine. Okay, great. So yeah, this is about you and your journey to where you are now. So I guess if we go back to right to the beginning, where did you grow up, and how, how was the uh, how was the first few years of your life? Oh, where did I grow up? Um, <clears throat> when people. <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because when people, whenever I, people ask me that question, I always say Bedfordshire, which was then, if I say Luton, it has so many negative connotations. <laughs> and then I feel like I get defensive about Luton. And I'm like, so yeah, I was kind of, I born in the L&D, which is the Luton and Dunstable Hospital. And you can tell I'm from Luton because I dropped the T when I say it. So it's Luton. It's never Luton. And um, I grew up kind of initially just outside of Luton in another area called Houghton Regis. And um, then we kind of moved back into Luton a few years later. But I would say I predominantly grew up there. Um, and in the early years growing up, it felt quite, what's the word, quite wholesome, I would say, to a degree in terms of the area. So the area was um, a small, kind of quieter part of the town, little small rail station, um, a little tree-lined road um, where kind of a lot of the neighbours knew each other. And, you know, we grew up, we didn't have very much money and we were in a council house, but a lot of the houses around us were private. So although we didn't have very much, some of the other neighbours, they kind of knew we didn't have very much. And they were so kind and, like, they would, if they had, like, fruit that had come off their trees, they'd bring around bags of apples for us kids. Or uh, one of the neighbours, this Italian guy called Mario, I remember him, he some reason I had like a couple of spare bikes and he just brought them across. And I remember we had a neighbor called Ethel, a very elderly lady. And she then um, for a little while was teaching me how to knit. So we had really nice neighbors and I felt very safe there in that I would always be out. So as a child, I did not like being inside. I did not like being inside and I did not like wearing shoes either. So I would always be either in the back garden trying to dig to find archaeological treasure I was sure I'd find something in the garden I didn't really I found one big rusty key uh, <laughs> or I would be kind of um kind of trying to make perfume out of flowers or I would be digging up flint the rocks and trying to make fire I never managed to make fire but I was always outside whether it was raining so it doesn't matter what it was I'd be either out in the back garden or out in the field across the road or out front with like friends and other local kids in the area. Okay, so a bit of a bit of an explorer as a, as a kid. Yes, yes, a lamb, a bit of a wanderer. Yeah. Okay, good, good. And I actually thought, for some reason, I, I thought your name, your surname was Nigerian, but it's your parents are from Jamaica. Is that right? Oh, uh, well, the name. Who knows where the name is from? But oh. um, the my family from the Caribbean. Yeah, my yeah. dad was from Saint Vincent and. The Terralong name is from my grandparents and they are Jamaican. I see, I see. Yeah. And obviously you went to school and uh, you ended up going to uh, university to, to study psychology. At what point in your youth or your teenage years did psychology become a, an idea that you thought to yourself that you could actually do that? Yeah. So when I went to a Catholic school. And I went to, it was quite a good school in the area. And coming from a background, not having very much, I think I was on the outskirts of the groups a little bit. And especially being like a, a black girl, when majority of the school were either kind of um, 
Irish Catholic or Italian Catholic. And then I was like the little black girl in the school. There was only, I remember there was me and one other. That was it. Um, and so I was always on the outskirts and I'm quite an observant person. So I think also when you're on the outskirts, you observe more because, you know, you're not in the throng of it. Um, throng of it? Throws of it. And when I went to high school, I changed schools because I didn't, I didn't feel like I fit in very well in my Catholic secondary school. Um, and I had a lot of friends in my local area and they went to another school, another school down the road. So I transferred schools. I just told my mum I'm transferring school and made the change myself. Um, and I was much happier at that school. Um, the education wasn't as good, but I'm sometimes quite fortunate in that I've always found studying quite easy. Um, it's the one thing that I think it just kind of came naturally to me. I was always, like I said, I'm, I'm nosy, so I'm always quite a curious child. So I was always like trying to figure things out, reading things up, taking everything in. So then when I went to college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at university. Um, but I remember I spoke to uh, my psychology teacher or, some, or, or a, a tutor at college. And I was explaining to her, you know, what I'm interested in. And she said to me, it sounds like you want to be an educational psychologist. And I had never heard of this. You know, wow. if you grew up in a council house in Luton, what, what psychologists am I seeing? <laughs> I don't, like never would have heard of this. So when I looked it up and told me more about it, I thought that makes perfect sense for me because I, for me, going to school and education was like my safe space. It meant that whatever was happening what else, whatever else was happening in the world at a time or with family or around me, I had school and in school was a space where I was, I felt safe and where I was competent. And I think looking back now, I know that the reason I feel education is so important is that because whatever happens in your life, it's the one thing that once you have it, no one can take it away from you. And that's why I think it's so important for every young person to have the opportunity to learn because it does so much for you. I think it's a massive protective factor and it's something that can propel you so far and open up many doors or, or allow you to open doors for yourself or even to recognise what doors there are. I think that's a massive limitation for so many young people coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds like I did is that at the beginning, I did not even know what doors there were. So you don't know what doors to knock at or what avenues to go down until that teacher or tutor had said those words to me I would never have heard of an educational psychologist so that's why once she mentioned that I then applied to some universities for psychology and again because I was kind of just doing my own thing I was a very um independent young person very because I'm the eldest in my family and my mum kind of just I'm not sure why, I kind of maybe trusted me a little too much. So that's why, like, when I was end of year nine, I was like, I'm changing school. And I decided that myself. Yeah. And then when I was going to university, I was like, I'm going to university. And I just handled that myself. And just and I just picked any unis that weren't too far away, that were roughly in counties I'd heard of and were okay for psychology. Looking back now, I wished I'd had some kind of support or some kind of knowledge to understand which universities were much better than others and the opportunities that could be afforded to you by going to, for example, a red brick university. I never heard of it. It was even something for me to say, I'm going to university because I was the first person in my family to ever go to university. That in itself was a step, let alone 
kind of gaming the system and thinking about which ones lead to what opportunities later on in life. I didn't have that level of insight. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, what what a supportive mum you've got. She basically allowed you to make the decision in year nine to change your school. I mean, (laughs) I can't imagine my parents allowing me to do that. So yeah, props to your mum. And then secondly, I mean, again, what a perceptive, I think it's a teacher that said you should do educational or be an educational psychologist. I mean, yeah, of course you took her advice and that's the yeah. career you got into. So, I mean, do, do you think that if you had had maybe a different teacher or careers advisor, you would have gone down a different path? I mean, have you thought about yeah, that? Yeah, I wonder. I, oh, that's a good, I think my feeling is that maybe I always loved architecture. Okay. <laughs> so I've always said if I wasn't a psychologist, I would have been an architect. But I think I... I think neither of us that might have happened. I think I may have still wanted to do psychology, but I have a feeling I would have ended up maybe doing clinical psychology because that's an area that is like more well known or or more heard of. And I probably would have ended up going that route, I think, if if they hadn't have told me about educational psychology, which is much more fitting for me. And I wish I could remember the name of that teacher because I would have thanked them, but I cannot for the life of me remember their name. Oh, you'd be surprised. In fact, you maybe won't be surprised, but there's been so many people on this podcast, so many times people have said that they owe thanks to a teacher in the past, maybe at school, maybe at college that have given them good advice. And then they've followed that advice and uh, 10, 20 years later, they're very successful. So yeah, teachers, I mean, it's a common theme. They are really, really valuable and important to people's careers. They are. So I um, obviously did a bit of research and I found out that you, obviously you left uni. I think you did a master's, master's after that in, in psychology as well. And then for a couple of years, you ended up becoming a maths teacher. So how did uh, that come about? You have been doing some research. How did you find <laughs> uh, That was before my master's, I did the maths teacher. So basically I um, finished my degree and then I moved back to not quite Luton, just outside of Luton. I moved back to Bedfordshire, let's say anyway. And I was thinking, I I knew I wanted to be an educational psychologist. In order to get on the doctorate back then, you had to have at least two to three years of experience in working in an educational setting. So I applied for jobs and I applied for a job actually at the old school that I went to, with the one, the one that I transferred to. And I got a job as a behaviour support assistant, which is basically like a TA, but kind of specifically more around behaviour. So I was doing that job in the school that I had attended previously. And then one day, sounds ridiculous, I was just walking down the corridor and my old maths teacher, who was the head of maths, um, was talking about the fact they needed maths teachers. And then I was saying, oh, (laughs) I could do that, I'd do it. And then he was like, would you do it? And I was like, oh, can I? And then it turns out that basically, if you have a good first degree, then you can teach a secondary school subject for up to, I think it was up to three years back then or five years um, before you have to get qualified. But after you do it for a certain amount of years, you then have to do the formal training and become fully qualified um, as a teacher. But you can just as a a person who has a good first degree, teach for a few years um, in the first instance. And I I think it's more about that maths teacher that maybe he had a lot of faith in his own teaching. So he was like, I taught her, I remember, I think she can do this. I don't know what, but um, yeah, I did teach. And I actually, I 
loved parts of it and disliked other parts of it. And I really loved helping teenagers in particular fall in love with maths or follow maths because it can be so abstract. It's so removed from day-to-day life. When you've got kids doing trying to teach them algebra and they're thinking, what is this made up kind of symbolic language and how does it apply to my life? It's so removed that it doesn't make sense. So I really enjoyed helping them to contextualize it, really simplify it and help it make sense to them. Because I think it's often taught in a way that is just, well, this is this because it's this. But it doesn't fit into their world or make any logical sense to them. So therefore, when they're trying to learn it, it just is this thing that is not even... Like usable to a certain extent. Yeah, well, they can't see the use in it. And also, it feels too foreign. It doesn't... They can't think about it. So you can't engage in this kind of like deeper thinking um, about maths. They can't reflect on the maths. They can't critically think about their processes because they don't have the language around it because they can't contextualise it alongside all their other learning. It kind of sits removed from everything else so I really enjoyed simplifying it and helping them understand like that when you have an x and a y in an equation you could basically just replace it with a question mark it just means something and I think even that they were like oh why don't they just put a question mark I said well because there's many question marks so you have to replace them with different letters so you can differentiate between them so I really just liked making it basic and 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 putting it in a language you know if you're doing some kind of algebra don't be talking about X and Y and Z. Or if you're doing a worded problem, don't make it about some guy running for his train. Make it about the newest trainers because that's what they're interested in. Make it about chocolate because that's what they're... So it's just like really making it fit into their world rather than just trying to make them comply and learn it for the sake of learning it. So I, I did enjoy I did enjoy teaching maths, yeah. But obviously you, you decided to go back into psychology. What do you think was the the main sort of driver and changing back to what you initially studied? Well, I guess I only was doing the teaching because I needed the experience to get on the doctorate. And Ah. I did that even for a little longer because I taught for uh, maybe just two and a half years. And it was only my plan to do it for a year and then do something different. But I say for two and a half years because I liked school. I liked the children. I think also it meant a lot to a lot of the children to see a black teacher in front of them and teaching maths. And I was young at the time. I think I was about, gosh, 23, 24, not even that. So they really, I think, took to me in a way that maybe saw me as being less stuffy. Maybe now if I was teaching, I probably think, no, she's stuffy. But back then, (laughs) back then I wasn't stuffy. So I felt like I wanted to give a little something back, especially as it was school that I went to. But I think I didn't enjoy the behavior management side of things, which takes up so much time. The school wanted me to do the, the formal training to do the teacher qualification. And when they came to me that, I thought to myself, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a teacher. And it kind of just reminded me what I was actually working towards. So then I applied for the master's and it was actually in uh, research methods and data analysis. So it's basically statistics. And I got onto the, that course. Then I, I left to go back and do more study. And I did that because, one, I, I quite like numbers I like things that are very logical and um, also doing that master's, I believe might help me get a place in the doctorate as well, because at that time um, I believed <laughs> that having a quali- that qualification would look good on my application and I'd enjoy it. So both ways. So I went back to do some more study. 
And I, I found out the other day that a doctorate, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's part, it's part research and part, what, what's the other part actually? I forgot what the other part is. It's, it's part, part placement. So you're kind of working it. on the job. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's basically just like the same as a PhD, but um, the only difference is that you have um, a lot more, like you've got taught elements. So we have lectures and also we have to work at the same time. So it's, and, and do research. So I guess with a PhD, it's primarily focused around one specific area and the primary focus is research and kind of furthering one area of study. Um, so it's kind of, you come out at the end, same doctor title and you both have to do a, a thesis, which is never fun, um, but ours is just um, applied uh, for a specific uh, career role. Okay. And then you, you start your career as an educational psychologist. So tell us a bit more about that. I mean, that was in 2012. Is, is that right? Yes. Good research. I, uh, you know, what? I wish it was that smooth because before that, so firstly, I would say for anybody who is listening to my journey, thinks she did this, she did this, to do the master's, I had to save and I, I, I took out what was a career development loan at that time. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I didn't have the money to pay for that. Um, so I had to do that. And then that took me time to pay off afterwards. I don't regret it. It was fantastic. Um, and then also once I finished the master's, I then got a job at the Anna Freud Center in London. That's what got me to move to London. And my dad encouraged me to go. I didn't want to move. I was like, why would I move? I'm comfortable here. But he's like, there's more opportunities in London. And he was exactly right. And it's the best thing I ever did. And I would never look back. Um, but I got a job at the Anna Freud Center and I was working in child and adolescent mental health um, research around, particularly around outcomes. Um, and I was doing that. And then I was applied, I was applying for the doctorate. Now I applied for the doctorate, I think three times before I got on. And that's not uncommon. It's, sometimes people get on first time, but it's not as common. And there, are, I've heard of people who applied seven times and still not got on. Right. So it, it's, it's very, very competitive. So yes, once I finished my master's and then I was, I worked, um, for about a year and a half or so, and then I got on the and then I got on the doctorate after that. I mean, why I didn't understand that it was so competitive. Why do people not get on first time? I and mean, how do you apply for a doctorate? Oh gosh, why do they not get on first time? Now, <laughs> you might have noticed a slightly a slight tone in my voice when I said I thought about well, why did the masters? I thought that's what was needed. Now, that's because I was originally told that if you can demonstrate that you've got good research methods, knowledge, and if you have a master's, that would help kind of bolster you up in the ratings and make you more lucky to get on the doctorate. However, when I got onto the doctorate, I found that was not the case at all. Oh, no. And nobody else had done this one. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and not only that, but research methods was just like not even that important on the course. And I was like, what? <laughs> um I'm glad I do because I love research, but still, um, why do people, so it's a tricky one because there aren't that many places in the country that do the training. Okay. And most of them are in the Southeast of England. So you've got, um, I won't name all those, I'll forget, but you've got UCL, you've got the University of East London, you've got the Institute of Education, you have the Tavistock and Portman where I trained. And then there are places, uh, I think is it UWE, University of West England, and more around the country. But the ones outside of the Southeast are very spread out. And for when I was training on each um, cohort, there's roughly only 12 places. So it's a very small training group as well. 
and then hundreds of people apply. So there's that. And they're looking for, and each year they're looking for different things. So it's hard to know. It feels like the goalpost is continuously moving. Sometimes they're looking for people who have had lots of experience of teaching. Sometimes they're looking for a peer of people who have had lots of experience of working with um, families with significant special educational needs. Sometimes they're looking for people who have had like, um, experience of working with people maybe in the youth offending. So it could be anything. And different universities prioritise different skills. So I know, so for example, if I'd gone to UCL, UCL, they do prioritise research skills a bit more so than some of the other institutions. So it's all about where you apply and what experience you have at that point and what skills. And also a big part of the um, doctoral application is not just saying, you know, I've got this qualification, this qualification. They really want to know who you are as a person and why you want to be a psychologist. So they're very interested in your own life experiences and what has brought you to them at this point. And you need to have to show that you are able to reflect on your own life experiences and also be aware of how they have impacted how you see the world. So there's a lot to it. So there's lots of reasons, you know, that you might not get on the first time. I see. So you embark on this career of becoming a educational psychologist. I mean, was it everything that you expected? Because a, a few years into it, you then decide to branch into what you're doing now, which is uh, a fashion psychology. Yeah. So how did it differ to what you expected, the, the educational side of things? So the doctorate for me, the hardest thing was how exposing it is as a training um, particularly where I train, and I'm with somebody who's quite, well, is quite guarded and likes to keep my personal life to myself. And when I went to this course, so much of it was about, and what they said was, we break you down and build you back up. And I was like, I did not come to be broken down. I came just to give me the papers, let me read them. <laughs> let me write you a nice, neat little essay. But where I train, they're very much about, it's not about, you whipping out this questionnaire or this assessment, you are the tool yourself. So you have to have a real um, strong understanding of who you are, um, how other people see you, how you view yourself, how you believe other people see yourself, how you work in groups, um, all of your kind of idiosyncrasies. There's so many things. And so we'd often have sessions whereby we sit in a circle with a psychotherapist and we would just talk and, you know, it was very exposing. People shared very personal things. And sometimes there was pressure to share. Sometimes we would sit in silence. But that I found very, very hard because my understanding of academia at that point was not about the personal. So it, I, was that, I was very close to leaving that course. But I'm very glad that I stayed. And then when I got into the role, um, I think working as a local authority EP, so education psychologist, differed. Um, from what I expected from my training. But I think that's because of pressures within the local authority. And we know there's massive funding cuts across the whole country for local authorities um, and because of all these austerity measures. So now as I'm working, I'm finding what you can do is a lot more limited than what you believe you can do when you're training because of time, resources, all of these things. So I think marrying up this kind of idealistic version of how you think the role will be and what and what you've experienced of it so far while you're training. And then when you get out into the working world, you have to really balance those out and um, take some adjusting, 
Um, but there are still positives on both sides. So I didn't, I didn't feel let down or like, oh, I, I hate this now. Once I began working, it was just a slight adjustment, I would say. I mean, I think that goes for many roles in the, in the public sector. You, you know, you can sometimes have that idealistic view of how much impact you can create, but then it gets, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, the day to day, due to the lack of resources, which you've just said, it's, uh, sometimes be quite frustrating. But, um, how long did it take for you to start seriously thinking about branching off into fashion psychology then after becoming a EP? Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very restless person. So when it, <laughs> it started before I became an EP. Ah, so okay. <laughs> once I had, I'm always thinking the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So literally, as soon as I got a place on the doctorate, uh, in my first year, I began thinking about other avenues. I'm quite like, I have a goal. And then once I've achieved that, so my goal was to get on the doctorate. And once I was on that, I was like, okay, right, I'll, I'll be finishing this. I'll complete it. Obviously, that's another target. But I basically, I've always loved like people's personal style. It's not so much I love clothes. It's I like personal style. I really like just watching what other people wear and looking at the choices people people make in their clothing. I like hearing how people speak about their choices of clothing or how they feel in clothing. And where I studied, um, there was a, I spoke about this before, there was a gender identity clinic and um, I just was observing the people who would go in and out of that clinic. And for me, a question was, if a person is um, working on expressing their gender identity, then who is helping them to work on expressing their or thinking about their gender expression. So how they express that gender identity. And one way we express our gender identity is often through our clothing. And I thought that was also quite a big psychological task because if you have gone the majority of your life having to go into one type of shop or um, being dressed by your parents as uh, one specific gender, but now you've had the kind of the, you've been brave enough to step up and say, well, you know, I'm going to embrace my true gender identity, then who supports you to explore that? Because I think it's a big jump to suddenly go from, I don't know, any, I'm trying to think of a male shop now, Burton, is that still going? I don't know why I'm giving these really dated references. I think, I think I'm just showing my age why that's the first thing to There's so many male shops and I've gone for Burton. That's so odd. Um, anyway, let's just say you've gone from shopping, I don't know, Hugo Boss section, and now you are wanting to express your gender identity and then you now want to kind of maybe shop in, I don't know, like pretty little thing or something. But actually, I wouldn't suggest them because I don't like fast fashion. But I just think that it's a big jump and you have to kind of learn so much again. And also it could be quite daunting maybe to have to walk into the different types of shops. And I also made the jump because a lot of my friends would always ask me to go shopping with them all the time, ask my advice as what to bear, as what to bear, what to wear, sorry. And so I found myself doing that. So... I was just interested in the relationship that people had between what they wore and how they felt. So I chose to, while I was doing my doctorate at the end of the first year of the summer, do a personal styling course. And when I did that course, again, I also noticed that the way people spoke about individuals that they styled, um, I didn't, didn't quite sit right with me. So the trainee stylists seemed to speak about the people they styled as almost like coat hangers or just credit cards. And they, there were statements like, I prefer just go shopping without the client and take their credit card. 
And I was like, well, then how do you understand their needs? How do you understand their wants? How do you get a sense of who they are as a person without them there? Or, you know, there were statements like, I don't like to dress anybody who's over a size 12 or 14. And I just thought, what? So there was a very, like a disconnect for me in terms of in the styling industry, a lack of consideration as to that person, who that person is as an individual has come to you. And also an understanding or even a a curiousness as to why they have come to you right now, what what their need is. And then I thought also in psychology, there was a lack of acknowledgement of the role of clothing and how much of an impact that can have on your well-being, your self-esteem, your confidence, and of course, your gender expression. So I just wanted to bridge that gap and offer something that would support people um, in kind of both ways, kind of addressing their inside needs as kind of psychological needs, as well as their external needs in terms of uh, clothing. Yeah. And I did see a video of you on the, I'm sorry, it might, it might have been a podcast where you mentioned that um, I think for part of your career, a few years ago, you decided to tone down your blackness when working with, you know, a kind of middle class white professionals, because you felt that I think maybe you, you, you would garner more respect by sort of appearing to be more professional. And I was just wondering, how, how do you think your own journey with fashion, how has that evolved over the years? Or are, are you the same person in terms of your fashion sense that you were, I don't know, five, 10 years ago? No, because I've got a lot older now. <laughs> yeah. so like, I feel like the things that I used to wear back in the day, I don't think that would work anymore. But uh, not, not to say that anybody else couldn't, it just doesn't work for me. Um, that turning down my blackness, I think that was when I was doing the doc trip. And that was because... I felt that at that point I hadn't qualified yet. So I was still being assessed and I thought I was being assessed continually. So in my head, it was a case of I every day was proving that I deserved to be there and that I was in the right place. And where I studied is a very, it's, it's Hampstead, you know, uh, yeah. that's an affluent area on the crux of Hampstead and Belsize Park. So a lot of the people, I was studying with, not all of them, of course, were from kind of middle-class families. A lot of the people who worked in that building were middle-class, upper-middle-class. Um, you know, it was mostly psychotherapists more than psychologists. And psychotherapy is a very, as a profession that's um, quite gatekeeping and quite gatekeeped in terms of finances, because in order to become a psychotherapist, you have to have psychotherapy for quite a long time as part of your training. And that's expensive. So finding somebody for a start who can, while they're training, shell out £80 per session and have like how many, like three psychotherapy sessions a week or so, or however many, is, is that, that already kind of narrows down who can kind of go into that profession. So working in an institution like that, I think I was trying to show that I belonged there. And the way I did that was trying to kind of assimilate. And I did that kind of through how I dressed and toning down my blackness as well. So I didn't, I would never have like cane row while I was there. I wouldn't have my hair kind of like too big in terms of like big crochet hair. Um, I I think I always wore my glasses. If I didn't have my glasses on, I felt like, oh no, they're going to notice. They're going to notice that, I, that I'm just, you know, from a council house and almost like Superman and Clark Kent. That yes, was my- that's exactly what I was going to mention. Yeah, that the <laughs> Superman uh, that narrative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's so silly to think that, you know, basically my my, my uniform was almost like a, a, a cardigan and some glasses, but yeah. that's what I thought 
you know, a psychologist should look like from what was being modelled around me. Um, and then it wasn't until once I qualified, I shook that off because, again, as I said before, once you have your education, that's the one thing that nobody can take away from you. And at that point, I, I had my, I was qualified and I was a doctor and there's nothing anybody can do to, to take that away now. That's it done. So in my mind, I was like, well, I can be as black as I want to because I've proven that I'm good enough and I've done this now. So, yeah, that's that's how that kind of evolved in that way. Yeah, I mean, there's one particular video of you on YouTube, and I think you're talking about working in Bali. And I could, I could barely recognise you. You are so conservatively dressed in that video. Uh, and if I, if I look at you today, there is a whole world of difference. So that yeah. that journey, that journey is really, really interesting. And I'm glad that you've you've come out the other end. That was also partially because um, Bali. It, we were working, so it's quite a conservative country. Ah, There's quite I see. a big uh, Muslim co- population we had to cover up. But also, I think at that point, you're right, I was still a little bit unsure in myself at times. So when I was doing that video as well, I think, again, I was trying to portray what I thought they thought a psychologist should be like. So I think at that point, I think you're right, I think I'd slipped, I'd slipped back a little bit and you can see it. Yeah. So, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, you did this styling course at the London College of of Style. And I think as well, you you did a bit of work for a styling company. And then, and then you set up your own consultancy. So for anybody that doesn't know what fashion psychology is, I mean, how how would you describe it in in one or two sentences? So first I would say the way that I practice fashion psychology might be quite different to the way other people do or other people's understanding. But Fashion psychology generally is just the application of psychology and psychological thinking and theory to fashion and fashion business. And what we mean by that is almost like I describe it to my students when I'm lecturing as you're wearing like a pair of glasses, but those glasses are kind of like psychology lenses and you're looking at the fashion world through those lenses. So you're analyzing and you're critiquing and you're unpicking and you're thinking and you're trying to understand all things within fashion through that psychological lens, whether that's why people wear what they wear, um, looking at the way fashion brands advertise towards us and the tricks they use and why they work, thinking about maybe um, certain things that we remember um, more prominently in terms of outfits or adverts and how that links to, you know, the function of memory um, itself. So it's all of those things. It's, It's a very broad subject and it's quite an evolving area. I'm not going to say it's a new area because it came up, you know, many, 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 many decades ago, but it wasn't called fashion psychology then. It was mostly just kind of like clothing studies or it came under kind of like social psychology or sociology um, and also studied a little bit in anthropology, but now it's kind of come together in its own little field. Um, so that's what fashion psychology is. But I'm very interested in not so much trends, and what big fashion houses are doing or anything like that. I'm just, I'm interested, not just, but I am very interested in how what a person wears affects their well-being and how we can better make use of clothing to support our well-being or how we can improve our understanding of the impact of clothing on our well-being and not only on our own, but on other people's. So think about sustainability and the, the kind of garment trade and the impact it has on garment workers. So also thinking about that as well. Right, right. So, I mean, you've, you've set up this consultancy now. How do you fit in 
the, the work you do through that consultancy with your EP work and with other work? How does it all kind of pan out? <laughs> I'm laughing because have you not noticed that I'm like here, there and everywhere? Like it has my yeah. like, yeah, that's why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's tricky, but it's got better in recent years. I think because at first for the consultancy, I wanted to work one-to-one with people, like individually. And I did for a little bit, but I'd stepped back from that because actually what I realised I was more interested in or not more interested, but what there was a need for was more of an evidence base because there is so little research out there. It has empirical evidence for fashion psychology. I really wanted to contribute to that and to broaden and build the field. So I've been more focusing on doing empirical research now. And also, so what I mostly do with the consultancy is now is do research. I'm working on a couple of projects at the moment. And I also then um, consult brands. So sometimes I'll be called in by companies to help them think about, okay, can you help us understand um, what makes a person want to hold on to their clothes for longer? Or what, what makes a person want to care for their clothes better? Or can you help us understand the relationships people have with clothing. Can you help us understand, you know, what people understand of our brand? Um, What is the link between how a person um, dresses and even I've had one, how people dress and their interior design of their home. So I get often called in by brands to comment on that type of thing, or it might be for like for articles um, for different publications. So that's most of the work that I do now rather than one-to-one, which I did enjoy, but I felt a slight frustration that when I was working with people, if I wanted to think about the evidence for what I was doing and how it works or what is helpful or what is not helpful or how people think in regards to fashion or clothing or trends or or fast fashion or whatever, it's quite hard to find papers on that. And I think because I am somebody, as I said before, who's quite logical and my research background, I was like, well, to me, it feels necessary to build the foundations of an area before you go running out there and just kind of like telling people all about this um, wonderful area um, without much evidence for it. it. Then then it becomes a bit pop psychology to me because what are you basing those assertions on? So I wanted to really get back and 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 look at the evidence and, and look for evidence, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, in fact, you've just kind of answered it. I, I was going to ask, you've done lots of work with some of these brands like uh, Sainsbury's and so forth. Next, I think you've also worked with, you've also done stuff with celebrities like Candice Braithwaite. And I, and I was going to ask you what's been the highlights since you've set up your own consultancy, but it seems like, you know, the research, the evidence-based stuff is, is the kind of work that you do enjoy. So I guess you've, you've answered that already. You mentioned earlier that this strand of psychology is not new. It has been around for, for many years, but maybe not in its current um Not in its current guise, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess initially, again, I think I, I did hear you say somewhere else that initially it struggled to get the recognition that it deserved from the more traditional strands of psychology. Is that changing? You know, particularly with the work that you're doing and your colleagues, is that, is that changing? Or do you f- sometimes still feel that you have to really fight for your place at the table? That's a tricky one to answer because I have swapped tables a little bit. So ah. it's still 
very under the radar compared to other areas of psychology. And there's only still one university in the world that does two accredited degree courses in the area. That's it. And I think I've been lucky enough the last couple of years to work with that university. So I think me being at that university, which was London College of Fashion, so University of Arts London, being with them for a short period of time was fantastic. And I just really relished the opportunity of being around people who, of course, had heard of fashion psychology, um, talking with my colleagues about it, um, having those discussions even over lunch, and standing in front of a kind of classroom full of students who are wanting to learn this stuff and also being able to share psychology. So I think I've been so immersed in it now that actually I don't notice as much that it's not maybe getting the recognition it deserves. However, if I take a step back, I'm, I am aware that it probably isn't. Um, if we think about kind of organisational bodies in the UK, you have the BPS, the British Psychological Society, and while they do accredit uh, the the courses at LCF, you know, I don't think it's still uh, like a like an area of like a a career that anyone can go into. So if you go onto certain websites and you look for careers in psychology, fashion psychology would never come up. Or if you look at um, even like recognised areas of psychology, I don't think it still will come up. So I think it is still very under the radar, but I think a lot of that is, again, like I said, because psychology is a science, regardless of it being a social science, it's all about the evidence base. And if there isn't much research being conducted, basically studies being conducted, in the area or things being published in the area outside the media it won't get the kind of recognition within the scientific field that that it kind of needs in order to get that credibility i think it's definitely growing there are people out there who've been doing fantastic work in the area like professor carolyn mayer who who kind of launched the course at lcf and she has been out there kind of trailblazing and i where i do see um, people taking note a lot more now is kind of on social media and in the general media you know magazines like stylist magazine regularly ask me for comment um the fabulous magazine at the sun um days magazine these places because uh, i think now people are aware of how people shop and the fact that we're buying far too much that you know the rise of sustainability people are stopping now and they're saying, hang on a minute, what's going on? Why? Why are people kind of like just scrolling through these websites and buying 101 items that they wear once and throw away? I think it had to become a problem for people to start to ask why and to consider the relationships we have with, with, with fashion, with clothing. And now they're doing that, they are turning a little bit to psychologists to help them understand the why, because obviously that's what we specialise in is, is helping um unpick and discover the, the whys behind things yeah and i i did read elsewhere that you you've been described as a pioneer of this particular industry i mean yourself with the likes of uh carolyn mayor as you mentioned so how does it feel to be described as a pioneer odd odd <laughs> to me <laughs> odd and i think i think i'm i'm i've seen that I've seen where I said that a couple of places and I think it's very flattering and it's lovely, but I think it just tells you how small the field is still. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think about people who even call themselves fashion psychologists, it's a very small group of people. 
And then if you look at how many people who call themselves fashion psychologists are qualified psychologists, I can think of three, including myself, mm. in the world. And I'm, I'm sure there will be more because it is growing. And I think especially uh, the fact that um, LCF has this have these two fantastic courses, the degree course and the master's course, yes, you don't qualify from them as being a psychologist, but you do come up with some fantastic skills and knowledge specifically in the area of fashion psychology. So I don't doubt that those students who are leaving that course are going to go forward and do fantastic things. And actually some of them already are. You've got Shaquilla Forbes-Bell, who is massively trailblazing, has published a book, has been on TV, and I think she did the Masters. Um, and you know she's doing fantastic work. So I think as more and more faces get out there that represent this field, I think it will make other areas um, not other areas, but like um, kind of uh, the air, um, professionals and organisations within psychology take note, perhaps. So I think you know it might, it might increase our credibility or at least the awareness of us that we do exist. We are out there. And do, do you think there's anything in the fact that obviously yourself, you mentioned, uh, is it Sha- Shaquille? Did you say? Yeah. yeah. Dawn Karen, I believe, is also black. Yeah. Do, do, do you think there's anything in that, or is it just pure coincidence that three? ladies in a very small field that happen to be uh, black. Yeah, and there's more upcoming. I, I, I see them popping up on social media or messaging me. How would you explain that? Is it just because you've gone in there as pioneers and you've inspired a new generation or is it is it something more than that? I'm not sure. I've thought about this and I, I think there's probably a few things going on here. I think, one, it might be the faces they see that are in the field. And I think, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And the fact they can see some women of colour doing this probably is helpful. Um, I think the other thing is that as a person of colour, I think we are often very mindful of what we wear, especially when we're working in certain fields where there aren't many of us, like I was when I was doing my doctorate. So I think because we have this almost hyper-awareness of how we're perceived it might then lead us more to think about clothing in more of a critical way than other people who don't have to be so hyper-aware of how they move through the world or how they're perceived to move through the world. So it might be an area of psychology that just particularly resonates with women of colour who, you know, use clothing to camouflage, use clothing to celebrate their blackness, use clothing in all different ways, you know. Um, So I think it, it probably resonates quite well. And also... I would tentatively say this, but I have wondered whether it might also be because other areas of psychology, traditional areas of psychology, are more heavily gatekeeped. So in order, say, like health psychology, clinical psychology, my field, educational psychology, forensic psychology, they're legal terms. And you you cannot call yourself one of those titles unless you have the relevant qualifications to do so. Um, but fashion psychology, because it's not yet fully recognised uh, as wild as it needs to be, there's no nothing stopping you, really. So that's why you have a kind of a mixed bag of people out there who are qualified to different levels, um, because it's kind of like coaching. Do you remember like when coaching became a big thing? And, you know, you, you could go to the back of a magazine sometimes and see like a two-day coaching course and people were out there advising people on their entire lives. You're like, what? <laughs> it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit unregulated at the moment. And I think that will change because as it gets bigger, that's, that's, how, that's how all areas of psychology start. You know, 
thinking about when Freud was out there analyzing people on his sofa, uh, doing psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, that was, you know, a field that was still developing and not as well regulated today, you know, that the regulations are a lot more strict. You couldn't be out there doing, what, I won't go into what he was doing, very unlawful things. Ah. You couldn't be out there <laughs> doing what he was doing now. So I think as yeah. the field grows and progresses, uh, I think, you know, they will gatekeep more. But my hope is that regardless of that, whatever parameters are put in place, that we continue to see a good representation of people from diverse backgrounds engaging and interested in the area. So I, that would be my hope that, you know, even if it becomes a doctorate or you need a PhD or a master's, whatever it is, that um, that we still see people feel they're able to to get into the field. Well, we're winding down now. Um, something that we ask all, all guests on the show is how much of your success to date do you think is down to luck? How much is down to hard work? Or how much is down to talent? If you had to choose one of the three I think it's, I think it's all, all talent. No, I'm joking. Ah. Um, but definitely not. <laughs> I think for me, I think it's luck of circumstance and hard work. I think it's those two mostly because I have to, although I came from a, a, a very poor background and, you know, no one in my family had been to university. We had only a few books in our house that I would just sit and read over and over again. And, you know, didn't have those opportunities or even examples around me to see what you could be. Um, the fact of the matter is that I was born in the UK where there are smooth roads that can be driven along to get to school. I was born in the UK where education is free. I was born in the UK where libraries are free and I can go in and get books. I was born in the UK whereby I might not, I might not have the money to pay for university and my family don't, but I was able to get a student loan. So if I was born in another country, and it's pure luck I was born in this country because you don't have any control where you pop out into the world, that I was very, very fortunate to pop into the world, pop out into the world in a country whereby, because I'm relatively academically able, I was able to make use of those skills and work hard because I'm quite dogged and focused to get to where I wanted to be. Because if I had been born somewhere else, you know, regardless of how intelligent I am, if there's war going on around me, isn't nobody going to school when the school's been blown up or it's not safe to go out or, you know, there's so many things that can get in the way where intelligence by itself is not enough. So I think I am very fortunate in that circumstance and that is luck, but I think the rest is um, definitely hard work. Good to know. Good to know. And what, what does the future hold for you? I mean, we, we already discussed that you've, you know, you've already started doing all these media engagements, Stylist Magazine, you're popping up now on sort of uh, radio and TV. What does the future hold for you? And also, where do you see the fashion industry going? In what direction do you see it going? The fashion industry? So do you mean the wider fashion industry or fashion psychology? Yeah, fashion psychology, yeah. Ah, okay. I was going to say, fashion industry is lawless. Who knows? So what's next for me? Well... Uh, I'm on the a TV show coming out, not my TV show, but I'm on one, which is coming out end of the month. Um, that's fantastic. That was very fun to film. It is an Irish speaking TV show, which was fascinating because while I was filming it, I had no clue what they were saying most of the time, but I had the best time. And I just knew whenever they said 
something, something, Dion, it was my time to jump in. So okay. <laughs> that will be out at the end of the month and that will be on BBC iPlayer. There are subtitles for the parts where we're not speaking in English. Uh, that's called EDSOS. Uh, ED means clothes in uh, Irish kind of Gaelic language. So it's a clothes SOS show. That's out, I think, 26th of March, uh, 26th of June, sorry. Um, going forward, what's new, what's coming up for me? I think I may write a book. Um, I've been pestered for years to write a book. But prior to now, I didn't have the confidence to write a book. And I think for me, the reason was because a bit of a uh, personal thing is I had ADHD and didn't realize I had it. So that really impacted on my ability to sit still and focus and to find my words and to write a sentence. I would always start writing a sentence and then forget what I was trying to write. So that's not very conducive writing a book. So now that I've got that under control to a degree, I feel that I might be ready. So I think Next up will be writing a book. And where do I think fashion psychology will go? I think that organisations like the BPS will take more notice. And I think that we might see um, more kind of, we have this kind of like little chapters um, for each area of psychology. There might be one of those established, maybe its own psychological journal. And I think we might see more universities starting up um, accredited courses in fashion psychology. Well, we look forward to that book coming out. Um, stay, uh, stay, stay tuned for that. That'll be really exciting. And where, where can people find out a bit more about your upcoming sort of media appointments? Are you on social media at all? Yes, I would say the best place to, to follow me is on my Instagram because I keep that the most up to date. Um, everything else kind of slips. And that is my Instagram handle is at the fashion psychologist underscore. Great to hear. Dion, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and uh, all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And there you go. That was my conversation with Dr. Dion. Great to have somebody on the show who is doing something probably most of us haven't heard of in a great detail before. So I'm sure we will see Dion popping up more and more over the next few years as this line of psychology gets more recognition in the in the public eye do check her out thanks for listening please do give us a rating or a review on spotify or apple Podcasts, wherever you download this show obviously you can check us out on social media at how i crushed it also please do leave a, a review on social media if you get the chance and as always if you think there is somebody that you think would be a great guest on this show maybe somebody who has gone through adversity to become successful in their career, please do let us know. Email is howicrushedit at gmail.com and we'll see what we can do. See you on the next show.